ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners, please be advised that this conversation contains content that might be upsetting. Please use discretion when listening. Auntie Ruth Hegarty has lived a long and remarkable life. She's a Gungaree woman born 94 years ago on her people's country, which is about halfway between Brisbane and the South Australian border. During the Great Depression, Ruthie's family moved to the Sherberg Aboriginal Mission and she grew up in the brutal mission system, separated from her mum and put to work alongside the other dormitory girls, polishing the floors with beeswax and being punished for everything from wetting the bed to crying to talking. And no talking was the rule that Ruthie broke the most. Because Ruthie loved to talk and to laugh. She wanted freedom and she wanted to tell her story. It took many years, but at 68, Auntie Ruth Hegarty published her first book called Is That You, Ruthie?, which won the David Uniapen Award. And 25 years on, that memoir has been turned into a play of the same name, which premiered to a standing ovation in Brisbane late last year. Hello, Auntie Ruth. Hello. You were born in 1929, so if we're going to get through your story, we really better get going. Get going. <laughs> yes, yes. You're a Gungaree woman who was born in Mitchell. Mm. So how did you and your mother end up at the Sherberg Mission, 500 kilometres or so away? Yeah, it was around about the time of the Depression in 1930. And my grandfather, who travelled all over the West, taking his children, his family, my mother, with him, and uh, every station he'd gone to, cattle station or sheep station or wherever, he would be the uh, fellow that did most of the work that was there, you know. I mean, he picked up all sorts of jobs. So he supported his family. But during the Depression, he knew he couldn't do any more because everybody was out of work. And it was the policeman, my mum tells me, he went to see and the policeman said, why don't you go to Baramba? That was the name of Sherberg before it became Sherberg. And uh, mum wasn't about to, to let them go on their own. She was engaged to be married to my father. I was six and a half months old. And uh, she said, I will come with you to help her mum, who had a small baby as well. So Leslie was a bit younger than me. Uh, I'll help you there, then I'll come back and uh, Frank and I will be married. But when we got there, my mum tells me, it was almost like going into a prison of sorts because we were kept there. We weren't allowed out. Just a little while, that's what grandfather told her. That's all we'll be there. The policeman told them the same thing. You come back. But that just in a little while turned out to be a whole life for both of us. So you were separated from your father and yes. there with your, your mum. Where did the two of you live first off when you were at the mission? They put us into the dormitory there. My mum explained it. It was like an old piece of rag, she said, torn in three parts. You and I were sent to the girls' dormitory, the women's dormitory. I kept trying to say to the boss, I'm not supposed to be here. But no one listened to her. Grandfather was sent to the camp, him and his wife and the two smaller ones, and the brothers, her brothers were put into the boys' dormitory. So sort of like punishment straight away. Mm. And know. this was a time when the government had control over where Aboriginal people lived and where their movements were. Oh, so had, there was yes, they've had no control. Way out. And we, Mum said she recognised that control straight away, that somebody was controlling their lives. Could she teach you your own language, your Gungari language? Gungri language. Your Gungri language. I am learning that now. 
We didn't even know who she was all that time. I had to do research to find out just who my mother was. Because at this mission, there were Aboriginal people from all parts of Queensland put together in the one area. It was a dumping ground. There were about 45 different tribes there. Everyone spoke their own language. And um, being in the dormitory, we weren't allowed. Well, no one was allowed to speak their language. We had to speak um, English. What had the other mothers in the dormitory told your mum to do so that you could stay together? So I was a breastfed baby at the time. And the other mothers said, keep her sucking on the breast. Because, they said, they will take Ruth away from you when she stops doing that. Mum couldn't understand what it was that they were doing because we'd been there now four and a half years. But I wanted to do everything earlier than everybody else. I stopped feeding on the breast. I crawled quicker than anyone else and wanted to go to school more than anything else. So once you you started going to school, where did you have to live? The matron said to Mum, we're going to take Ruth and send her to school. Mum says, she's too young. Matron said, she sneaks away to school every day. So I figured she'd be she'd be right for it. Mum had she had no authority whatsoever. She couldn't argue. That was the time they took the girls away. The boys went earlier. They'd be about three year old or something when they went. Where were you living, Auntie Ruth, once well, the, you'd started going to school? But the dormitory was a big place, so they had it sort of half for children. We could see our mothers, but weren't allowed to go to them. So we were completely separated. I sat on the other side of the latticework wall and called out to her, but she would not come out. She said it would have upset me more and it would have upset her. I remember when we were in the dining hall, the mothers sat on one side and the little girls on the other. And I would drop spoons on the, on the floor to get her attention. She sat with her back turned to me. And never once did she look around. And I remember asking her about that. She said, had I looked around, Ruth, I would have been so angry for the way that they were treating you. Because dropping spoons on the floor meant that you were making a noise and I'd have to stand out in the middle of the floor until everybody finished eating. It's an unbelievably cruel thing you're describing, of your mum being there and you at four and a half seeing her and trying to make contact and she having to hold herself back from that instinctive thing she would have wanted to do, which is hug you and be with you. Well, give a kiss. You know, I mean, that's how we were up until I was four and a half. Then she had to tell me that she was leaving. Where was she going? She was going out to work. So once they had separated us and I was put into the little girl's section, she came to me one one day, the kids said, you know, your mum's waiting for you. I was surprised because I hadn't spoken to Mum since we were separated. And she said, I'm going away. They're sending me out to work. And uh, she said, I don't know when I'll see you again. Well, you held back. I I, I wouldn't cry because any kid crying in the home, they would be called crybaby bunting. And I just said to her, you know, where are you going? She said, they'll tell me when I'm going. In a couple of days, they allowed me to help her to pack a suitcase. And then she was gone. And I think after that, I became the naughtiest kid in the place. How often did you see your mother after that? About once a year. The people she worked for at Cinnabar, they were the McGills and she went to work for them. So they asked 
the boss, Mr. Sample, if I could go and have two weeks with Mum at the end of the year. And what do you remember about that? Oh, I loved it. I really, really, not so much Mum because somehow I saw her as somebody who was not free to do what she wanted and that's what I was seeking, that freedom to be somewhere else and not in the dormitory. And whenever we got there, uh, I, I still have uh, association with Gordon now, who was just a year older than me. He and his brother Jack would be waiting for me. And he still remembers they built a raft. And uh, Ruth's coming, Ruth's coming. It was say, Mum says, get into your shorts. But we weren't allowed to wear shorts in the dormitory. And she'd have clothes there ready for me. It was like your one chance to be a kid. One one chance to be a kid and to, you know, do something with kids. Race down to the creek. It wasn't far away and Gordon and Jack are waiting there with the, we're waiting for you. We're going to launch the raft and you're to get on it, Ruth. So I sat on the raft and out they pushed and a blooming raft sunk. <laughs> Could you swim? I was never a swimmer. <laughs> But Jack just rolled on the ground and laughed and he thought it was a great joke. Well, I, I punched him. <laughs> Gordon still remembers that. He's a year older than me and we usually pull in at Kilkeven <laughs> and visit him from time to time. Oh, I was so angry. But I enjoyed being there. You, as you say, had been so excited to go to school. You wanted to learn. Yes. And you learned to read when you were a little girl. And yes. What do you remember about? I remember about she used to, the matron, she was white, she brought her, her daughter's uh, Shirley Temple books up and I would read. I could change my voice. I could, I was a, I'd say it now, I was a great reader and I'm still a great reader. Did you read to other kids? Were you reading uh, yes, out loud? Yes, they'd all be on the floor and in the sewing room. And I would read these stories to them. It happened, oh, I, I don't know if it was every Wednesday night or once a month or something, I can't remember. But if I was naughty, they would give the book to someone else. That was my punishment. What did they teach you in, in school? What was class time like? Class time was just three hours. We, could, we learned nothing about geography we learned nothing about the different tribes and we were sort of separated from the people in the camp and it meant then that we had to even learn about the other kids. We could have been related to some of them. But it was reading, writing and arithmetic. That's all they wanted us to learn. Were they more wanting to train you to be able to go out and work? Oh, yes, we were being trained for that. We could see that was happening. We were trained to do that, mainly obedience. Obedience was the thing because when we went at 14, we had to sign a contract, a, well, an agreement to say that we will be obedient to our, our mistress and our bosses. So what was a typical day like when you were a dormitory girl? What would happen? What time would you have to wake up? Oh, about six o'clock. I could still remember the old bullock bell. That would ring early in the morning. And if you didn't get out of bed, you know, somebody will throw a bit of water on your face. Um, if you were a little girl, you had to go downstairs straight away. And the big girls would make your bed up and uh, polish the floor. The floors were polished every day. Every day? Every day with beeswax. So when we got, I got into an older, into the older kids' And we had to do the little girl's room with the beeswax. We devised a plan. And there was always plan B. So I said to the girls, what we could do is there's an old old blanket here. After we put the polish on, we just put two people on the blanket, run it down the ward. We were never found out for that. It's a smart trick. It was a smart trick. We got the same results. What sort of things, you know, you said you had to learn obedience. What sort of things would get you into trouble? Being late. The bell was what 
it ruled your life. Whenever the bell went, uh, we had to be in line outside the door of the dining room, ready. On school days, you had to have been bathed beforehand and put in and in your uniform. We had a room that they called the box room, and that box room contained all of our clothes. No separate, nothing separate. It was all our clothes were put into a box, and you had to find your uniform. But obedience was the thing, and no speaking, no speaking at all. Walked into that dining room. We had great big long tables and big long stools, and you had to pick them up and put them back without making a sound. Nobody spoke. Even if you coughed, you know, someone would look up. It's like you were in prison. Well, oh, you yes, were, it, you was were very in much, prison. it was very much like that. And, and what about at the end of the day? Were there more chores after you'd finished school or your classes? We had to go across the creek for wood. That was for our hot baths in the morning. The big boiler would be set alight and we'd have hot water for baths. And what were bedtimes like? in the dormitory. We had tea at five o'clock. We had to be in our nighties. So you put on an old, a, a big nightie. Everything was calico. And if you were lucky, you'd get a nightie that almost went down to your foot because we weren't allowed to wear pants underneath. And the manager, she would stand there as we marched up 24 stairs and she would shine a torch and we'd lift our nighties up to show her that there was nothing underneath. And we slept together top and tail. So being in a long nighty meant that you could put your nighty around your leg. I used to talk at night. I told stories. And we'd push out two beds together, two single beds, and there'd be about two in the bottom and one in the top. Kids. And we would talk. And that's where I got that, is that you, Ruthie, from? Because she'll make me go out and kneel on the floor till everyone went to sleep. Then I would go back into the room. And I'd have my room that I had, my place in the bed, would have been taken. We had kerosene lamps, the old hurricane lamp. That'll be just about flickering by this time, almost going out. No one would go to the loo for you because we had an old thunderbox, you know, the old thunderbox out on the veranda where the pee the beds. Now, these kids were naturally called pee the beds and that annoyed me terribly. I hated it. They would sleep on mattresses out on the veranda and the thunderbox was there near them. Bedtime was, most kids would try and go to bed, but if you had a toothache or an earache, shut up, crying. You'd get put in that dark room. And the dark room was a, a thing that has stayed with me all my life. Most children didn't like it. You'd be put into a dark room. And just kept in there? Just kept a, in there. You'd as be, a punishment? You could be for, forgotten. And the sort of things that would get you put in there would be crying if you had a toothache. Yeah, if you cried too much. Nobody would come and give you something for that toothache or for that earache or even to comfort you. I was lucky my mother's sister, who was just uh, two years older than me, I could jump into bed with her. And she'd rub my ear if I had an earache. You must have been like sisters to one another, everyone we, in the dormitory. Everybody, everybody was sisters. We were all sisters. Everything was run by age. Because if you were in the little girls' ward, you were, you were there until you were 11. And then you were moved into the big girls. And when I got into the big girls' ward... I was still one year older, uh, younger than most of them there. 
And it was a great thing for me to get into the big girls' ward because <laughs> I wanted to get into the mischief, stealing out of the pantry at night, smoking, doing all these wonderful things that I thought were so great. Just coming out of the little girls' ward because I had friends in there. When I got into the big girls' ward, uh, I really didn't have a good friend. Uh, the big girls didn't want me because I talked too much. How did you meet Marcia, who'd go on to be this great friend of yours at the mission and and after? They came uh, one morning in a taxi and I watched the family get out of the cab and somehow or another, looking over there and seeing Marcia, she looked up and she had a smile for me and I smiled at her. And even though she was one year younger than me, they let her be my friend. Tell me about the sort of mischief you got in together, you two. Uh, I remember Marcia didn't smoke. <laughs> and <clears throat> I wanted her to, yeah, get into this with me. Somebody gave me a, a, a drawer and I kept the smoke in my mouth. And I ran around looking for her because I wanted to blow it into her mouth. <laughs> if I got into trouble, she'd get into trouble as well. Did you find her? I found her, <laughs> blew it into her mouth. We both got sick. <laughs> but it was just when I was stood in the middle of the floor for dropping spoons, she would save me a little bit of damper and uh, she'd have that ready for me when they wouldn't feed me. I'd have to go to school. The school bell will ring and then they'd let me go. The, the school was next door and Marcia would have my better damper for me so I'd have something to eat anyways. True friend. She was a true friend and she fought with me as well. What do you mean? I had a fight every Wednesday afternoon. At, it was ter- after religious instruction. <laughs> Now, you couldn't get anybody more religious than me now. <laughs> These little ones that I was in the in the little girls' ward with, their class started to fight them. I don't know why. What, like a scheduled, like a boxing? No, no, it was... What, like yeah, fist, fist, fist fighting. Yeah, yeah, for something. I don't know what the girls had done. But I was in my last six months at school before I was sent out to work. So... I was coming out of school. Our class was let out a little bit later than the others. And these three, Nellie, Deli and Biola, <laughs> we had a girl there called, she had a name, but we all called her Piggy. She wanted to fight us because Piggy was the boss of all her class and these three probably didn't do what she wanted them to do. And I said, yeah, what do you want me to do about it? When they told me. Well, we, told, we thought we'd tell you about it anyway, that she wants to fight us. Okay. By afternoon, Wednesday afternoon after religious instruction, I got a note. Piggy will fight you this afternoon. I thought, no, this can't be. <laughs> but if I was fighting somebody and somebody else wanted to jump into the fight, well, this was Marcia's go, then she would have a go. We did that in the last six months, but Marcia's mother then claimed her children back. And that left me then with no friends. This is when I started to make these little dolls with the kids in the in the next room. They came in then because most of the girls were gone out to work and I was left in the big girls' ward. So they were putting all the other children in into that ward because other children have come in, younger children have come in. They were always filling it up. So you were sent off to work at 14. I wasn't, I, I turned 14 in July. So they didn't let you finish the fourth grade. At 14, you were sent. In July, I was taken to the office and I knew, we all know when our day is, is, is ready. We knew when our birthdays came around that we would go. Every one of us knew that. And where were you sent? I was sent to John Dowie. 
And how did you travel out there? By train. Had you ever been on a Never. train before? Only when I went to Cinnabar. But this was going further. I had no idea. I was 14 years of age. And I missed the, missed the station, went to the next station. And the head, uh, station master said, you're off on the wrong one. We were all given a letter when we go anywhere to whom it may concern. This person, you know, Ruth Duncan, is travelling too. Any help to, you give to her will be appreciated by this office. So when the headmaster said, you've gotten off at the wrong station... The, the station master. Station said. master. I handed him the letter. We're like robots. You knew what to do. And he said, will your train be through in the morning? So where did you sleep? I didn't sleep. I sat outside on a form. At 14? At 14, on my own. And he, he put the lights out and he walked off and left me there. I knew if I did a pee on the grass that I'd be punished. And I had to wait until the morning when he came and opened the, opened the door for me to run in and use the, use the loo. Podcast and broadcast. This is Conversations with Sarah Kanofsky. How did your new employers greet you after you finally made it safely to their place? One of the sons picked me up. He didn't even introduce himself. You should have been here yesterday. That's exactly what he said. Should have been here yesterday. That was inconvenience, you know. He had to leave something he was doing to come and pick me up. It was just like meeting the matron, the boss. There'd be no freedom for me. This was it. I was there as their worker, their domestic. That was me. What did you have to do for them? Well, the first morning, she came to me with two buckets. One had hot, soapy water in it. The other one was empty. You will go around to the to our beds. To, you know, she had two sons. Under the bed would be a potty. And she said, you would empty the potty into the empty bucket and you would clean the potty in the soapy water. I thought, crikey. These people can't walk down to the loo at night time. That was my first job of every morning. And then I would get the morning tea ready then. I really didn't like what was happening there. I wanted freedom. I wanted, you know, fly away somewhere, do something else. Were you sleeping in a room by yourself for the first time? A, a very, for the first time, oh, I almost cried. But we're not allowed to cry, mind you. I wanted to hear those voices, the snoring. I wanted to see that lamp flickering because I used to tell story, ghost stories. Frighten the life out of everybody. I was, I was a terror. <laughs> what had the older girls at the mission warned you to do each night when you were sent out to work? To always put your dressing table against the door. And did you know what that was even about? Well, they said the man would come in. Uninvited, he was pushed his way in. I did that every night. I pushed that dressing table against the door. What were things like between you and the the mistress of this house? It wasn't very good. As time went on, what was going on with the cinema trips that you had to... Oh, yeah, we went to pictures, but I had to go with her. That was the contract I had. I had to go everywhere with her. And in those days, they'd dress up to go to, to go to the cinema. Long dresses, your jewellery and everything else. And I'd walk behind her, little slave, you know. But she wanted me to do something. Uh, one day, she said, halfway through the year, Ruth, she said, 
I'd like you to come and rub my hand in the afternoon. I said, rub your hand, what for? She said, I'd just like you to do it. I said, no, I won't. I will not do that. It just sounded like it wasn't the right thing to do. She informed me then that I would be paying my own way into the movies. The movies was two shilling and sixpence. That was my, my wages. I was earning five shillings. The government took two and sixpence, and I was given. I had a pocket money book that she would come out on a Friday with the little book and the two shilling and sixpence, and I would sign for it. The movies was two and sixpence, and I knew I'd have nothing. She bought sweets, ate them there beside me. You could hear the rattle paper. I would not even look at her. I was determined, you're not going to make me do this. You complained about the waiters. I did. I wrote my first letter. I wrote it to my mother. I was just about 15 then. My mum could not read or write. And uh, when she got the letter, she got her mistress to read it to her. And uh, mum had to go to the department and told them that Ruth's not getting enough money, showed them the letter. And um, they put my wages up to seven shillings and sixpence. All of a sudden I knew that if you wrote a letter that something would happen. And did you have to stay working with that family? I ran away. I ran away only because the last letter I wrote to the department was, I need to leave this place. She's not very good to me. She calls me names. And she, I think she wanted more out of me. I, I don't know what it was. And... Um, they wrote back and said that they didn't believe me. They did not believe me, anything that I'd written about. So I ran away. I asked the mailman to wait for me. But while I ran back to get my suitcase, she told the mailman to go. So I followed his track all the way. Wherever he went, I was behind him. And finally, I found myself back to where I started from. I stood there and I thought, you're not going to win this one. So I saw cars going along the main road. I thought, I'll make my way to the car, to that road. And the policeman picked me up, took me to their house, gave me a meal and said, you stay here for the night. Now tell me all about it. And I did. I told him. He said, well, Ruth, you've only got about six weeks or so to go and I will make sure that you are on that train. Please go back. Well, had I not gone back, it meant that I'd broken my promise that I would stay there for 12 months and you'd get punished for that. So you waited it out another six, another six weeks. I waited you and she it. did everything that she could. But they wrote her a letter and said it looks as though Ruth by the way she's written to us, that she will not stay there. I think it was for another nine years or so, Auntie Ruth, you were sent to different farms, every, different every time, properties. Every time. And if, for each time, I think, I mucked up. Mucked up or stood up for yourself? Or stood up for myself. I went to two old ladies for three months and they were marvellous. It was at Bonjour. They had a property. They had a library. Oh, honestly. And were you allowed to read Oh, anything, anything. I was sad when I had to leave there after three months. They were beautiful people. It, it, it was good when you get somebody good, but if you got someone like the next mob I went to, <laughs> she had a son. I used to take him down for the eggs in the afternoon. He had a whistle, one of those police whistles, and he couldn't blow it. So I said to him, I'll blow your whistle for you, mate. I blew it so loud I could see her 
on the veranda. She was horrified. As soon as I got back with the little fellow, she got the she got the whistle and she boiled it. Oh, because you touched it. Because I put it in my mouth. She boiled it. I thought, oh, you'll keep. So she had a dinner that night, and she was having lots of people. They were stationary and Emily's people in the kitchen. There was me cap and apron, all starched and nice. She wanted me to wear them. I would not. I did not even look at her. I could see her trying to get my attention. She came out to the kitchen. She said, Ruth, please put your cap and apron. I would not. But these are some of the things you had to do. I felt I had to do it. You ended up spending some time living back at the mission once you became pregnant and yes. you had your first child there. No. We, had you been taught anything about sex or no, pregnancy no, or no, babies? No, we weren't allowed. We weren't allowed to read anything. I remember the Truth newspaper used to be out, you know, and you get into trouble if you're seen reading out. Oh, no, you go to hell. Satan be standing there with a pork and big fire and frighten the life out of us. But I knew nothing about sex. Quite a few of us lived in the camp. We'd been married by this time. My husband had no idea that I would get my period once a month. He thought I was putting it on. And those books that they had at that time, True Romances, True True Love, I think we learned more out of these books. Even the doctors wouldn't tell you anything. After you married Joe and were living yeah. in the camp near the, the dormitory, your best friend Marcia reappeared. What was that like? Oh, it was beautiful. She had children. She'd come back with her husband who was a Sherberg man. It was just so lovely to see her walking through that gate. I watched her come in and she was just about ready to drop that baby she was very pregnant, and I, we sat down. I thought I could tell her everything. She could talk to me about everything. We're both in a family violence situation, so we could talk about all of that. I, I remember offering her a cigarette, a half of my cigarette, and she told me she can't smoke it. I'm a Christian now. What happened to your dear friend? My dear friend went into labour that night and uh, Joe came home in the morning and he said, you sad, sad news, kids were all having breakfast. When they left, he said, Marcia died last night. I, I accused him of lying. I thought, this is something, he's trying to get back at me. But no, she had died that night. And that same night I was standing on my little patio and I accused God of taking my best friend away from me. I had never, ever prayed about anything in all those years, never, ever, because I always felt I could do things my way. I had the best way. And I felt that the Spirit of God came down on me. I said... Please, I'm not ready to die. I was 35, I think it was. I will serve you until I'm 90. Well, I'm 94 <laughs> now and still serving him. <laughs> You've been so good at it, he doesn't want to let you go. No, he won't. He won't <laughs> let me go. When I turned 90, my kids were a bit worried. <laughs> Because I still have all End, of them. End of the contract. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what sort of support has that faith been for you? Oh, wonderful. It, it has helped me. It has given me such strength. One of the things I believe that God has given me was voice. Because I was able to stand up to Joe straight away. I said to him, I am a Christian now. He said, good for you. But when I said, we are leaving the mission because my children need to be educated, our children's 
uh, report cards. Glennis was at high school then, would go to the superintendent. And we would have to go down as mothers to the superintendent and he would read the report card. Glennis wanted to be, uh, to speak French. She was good at it. And she was a great artist. He said, what good are these things for her? And I realized then that the children, because Mergen, there would be no jobs for them. And I remember saying to Joe, first time I spoke against anything that he wanted, I said, I don't know what you're going to do, but I'm taking the children. They need education. There'll be no jobs here for them. And um, he agreed. I was surprised. I mean, the violence didn't stop, but I was able to speak out. God had given me a voice. And that voice has been something that I have used. Was your mum in your life again after you became a mother? Auntie Ruth, how did that change things between Well, she didn't like I got pregnant the first time. I mean, did did I know what was happening? No. I had no idea. I did not have her there to tell me anything when the baby was born or anything. But I accepted that because, hey, you know, she's never been in my life, never. How did your relationship with your mum change over the years as... Well... Sometimes I felt I was the mother <laughs> and uh, we didn't have such a good time together. But that that authority of being mum was always there, just like it is. We never lose it. Once a parent, always a parent, you know. It's, and this would have been something you've reflected on, I'm sure, but it's not surprising that your mum, having gone through that terrible thing, oh, yes. having been imprisoned and her child taken away from her, didn't know how to be a mum to you. She didn't. I did some research on her uh, at the department and I found out things about mum. They had, yeah, treated her the same way that they treated me. I mean, she worked for people from the uh, Brisbane Girls Grammar School. She was everywhere cooking. She couldn't read or write, but they'd just tell her what the menu was and she knew what to do. And uh, she was to marry a man. She got We always had to get permission from the superintendent when we were, were about to get married. And uh, she went to them and she asked permission. But the people that she worked for, they wanted her to stay to, you know, sort of resign for more. And um, she said no, she wanted to get her exemption. Now, to get your exemption was a big thing. You were out of the government's reach. You were no longer a ward of the state. You can do what you like. And she wanted to marry this guy. I thought, I didn't know about this. I didn't know anything about her life. And uh, they, they did a terrible thing. Somehow the police were involved. I've got all their letters at home that they stopped the marriage because he had gone to prison. It was none of their, none of their business. She was a 37-year-old woman and she could please herself about what she did. Now she stayed there for about five, five months, four or five months, and her exemption was granted. But the her relationship with the man didn't go any further. What about your own father, Auntie Ruth? Yes. Did you ever get to oh, meet yes, him? Oh, yes, yes. I was 56. I never knew I had a father. I don't think any of us in the dormitory. We had film stars, you know. I think John Wayne was my dad. That's what I was looking for. And when she walked into our kitchen at Wavy Street, where I lived in Zilmia, uh, she was standing there against, oh, against the table. And she just said to me, Ruth, I think you should find your father. Joe just about put his head in his plate. The kids all looked up. 
Have I got a father? She said, everybody has one. Okay, so everybody has a father, but what's his name? She told me his name. And um, she said, you ought to look for him. I said, oh, yeah, one of these days. But I did start a little bit of a search. So I found out where he, where they lived and I made that phone call. And I think this was the most precious thing to me, that when, I, when he said hello, I said hello. I said, you won't know me, but I am Ruby Duncan's daughter. He said, you are Ruth. And that was so precious to me. I thought, this man, after this 56 years, still remembers my name. And uh, we managed, we talked for a while, and I went to visit them. He hadn't told his children about me, so it meant that I got to meet them all. And he'd visited me a few times. But I remember saying to Joe when we went up to Toowoomba, when Frank was coming out to meet me, I said, oh, God, is this my father? <laughs> it wasn't not John Wayne. It wasn't John Wayne. He <laughs> <laughs> looked so much like me. I said, is this where I get my hair from? I was only worried because every kid in the home had beautiful hair. <laughs> but we became friends. Hmm. It was very hard for me to call him dad, so having had not had a dad all those years. You know, well, the government had taken you from your mum and yes. your dad, and yeah. so really the family that you knew were those other dormitory they girls. They were the dormitory girls. Tell me about the reunion you had. That was, that was absolutely wonderful when we went back. How old were you then? I, oh, well, Cassandra was married by that time. She was my eldest daughter. And um, I took her with me. I wanted her to see all her aunties. You know, these were all their aunties. They thought they were all blood aunties. I said, no, these are my dormitory sisters. And um, by the time the whole day was done, we had to meet their families, you know, and the, and the grannies, <laughs> and, oh, it was so beautiful. I said to Cass, so let's go down and have a look at the dormitory. I walked down there and I saw, I saw the old place. We had a barbed wire fence, six foot fence and barbed wire on top and roses, creeping roses. The barbed wire was gone. There was no garden there. The roses were creeping along the ground. And that saddened me because we had a lovely garden. And I walked into the place and there were carpenters there. They were turning it into bedsitters or something. But I asked Cass to stay outside. I said, I need to do this by myself. Walked through, sawdust all over the floor. It just wasn't a place that I'd grown up in. It just wasn't. I wanted to run through it and scream and yell, you know, something we were never allowed to do. <laughs> but I couldn't do this to them. I just could not. I went downstairs then and had a look at old stoves that we used to stand around in the winter time. None of us had shoes. We were allowed one jumper each. It was freezing. You know what it's like up in the South Bernard. Oh, crikey. But a few months later, the place burnt down. And what was that like to hear that news? I was in, on the phone by this time in, at Zelmia. And it was Peggy that rang. Where have you been? She said. Our home is Our home. Our home is burning. I could see the flames from here. She was in hospital. Ruthie, somebody burning our home down. Delhi rung. I was getting all the... And this, this was our home. Mm. It's, it's the only home we ever knew. When Joe gave me that first belting, I wanted to go home. 
but I had no home to go to. And I did go back to have a look, just ash and old corrugated irons. It was terrible. So what I'm trying to do now is to raise a monument of sorts to us. Well, as well as a monument, you've made a monument through your writing. You've written this story. Yes. And it's now been turned into this wonderful play. That's right. By Leah Purcell. Yeah. Did your family come on opening night with you? Oh, yes. Every one of them, the eight, the whole eight of them were there with me. And what were you left feeling about your life after watching that show, seeing all that you'd gone through and that your yeah, mum had gone uh, through and the things you'd achieved? Where, what did it leave you with? I don't know, really. Just seeing the two girls up there. Playing you and your mum. Yeah, playing me and my mum. I thought about all of the others. Where were they? Look, memories are still there. I have not forgotten one of them. And I thought rather than write about each one and what they did, I'd concentrate on myself. And when I had uh, done the manuscript, I sent it to a few of them. And one of the things that they've said to me was, "You, it is about us all. It's not just you. We were there and it's about us all. I think about that little girl you described telling stories after the lights went out. Yeah. You, you told their story. Yeah. For everyone. That's right. Annie Ruth, it has been such an honour to meet you and, and hear your extraordinary thank story. You. Thank I, you. I thank you. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Sarah Kanoski. For more Conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au slash conversations.